0: I hear about sentence Maryam Sander to death by hanging
1: yeah. until she dies.
0: This I have done,
1: baby.
0: Mommy,
2: mommy, 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 mommy,
1: mommy, mommy, mommy.
3: What you just heard was Justice Yusuf Halilu passing the death sentence on Mariam Sanda. That was on the 27th of January, 2020. About two and a half years earlier, on the 19th of November, 2017, Mariam was charged with killing her husband, Bilyaminu Bello. At the time of his death, they had been married for only a little over two years. They had
1: a six-month-old baby, and she was also pregnant with their second child, Under the Nigerian constitution, a conviction of murder carries the mandatory death penalty. But the thing is, the death penalty is rarely carried out in Nigeria. According to Amnesty International, Nigeria has over 2,700 people that are known to be under the death sentence as of 2019. But since 2007, only seven death sentences have actually been carried out. The last time the death penalty was carried out was in 2016 in Benin, Edo State executed three individuals who had been sentenced to death for armed robbery by military tribunals. Their executions were carried out despite the fact that one of them was sentenced to death in 1997 by a military tribunal and never had an appeal. So the likelihood of Mariam Sander getting hanged is probably quite low, but that doesn't take away from the trauma of having a death sentence literally hanging over her head.
3: The lives of the rich in Nigeria are not really a thing for media attention, unless they also happen to be politicians, or they do something that suddenly throws media attention on them. Mariam and her family never imagined that this was the thing that would bring their family into the spotlight.
2: Mariam Sanda is a beautiful, brown-skinned young woman. In a few videos before her sentencing, When you see her smile, she has these dimples on her cheeks. She was born into a wealthy Muslim family with strong political connections in Northern Nigeria. Mariam has a strong bond with her mother as she was the only girl of three children. Her mother, Maimuna Aliyu, was a former executive director of ASO Savings and Loans in Abuja. It's a financial services type of company She was, and maybe still is, a powerful woman with financial resources at her disposal. But she wasn't always rich and powerful. Back in Maiduguri, where she's from, she lived a modest life. According to Blueprint newspaper, she met her husband Sander, an immigration officer, when she was working as a food seller after she had just finished secondary school. He married her, and Sanda encouraged Maimuna to continue her education. She graduated from the University of Maiduguri, and she joined a local bank in Maiduguri and rose through the ranks. She had a successful career in banking. We know that at some point Maimuna relocated to Abuja for the job at ASSO Savings and Loans. And being young and beautiful, Memuna allegedly attracted rich and powerful men. Somehow, her marriage went south, and according to reports, there was a bitter fight in court over the custody of the kids. She got custody of them and relocated all of them, including Miriam, to the United Kingdom. This is where Miriam is said to have met Beliaminu, probably sometime in early 2015. The United Kingdom
3: is a popular destination for rich Nigerians to send their children. They attend schools like the University of Dundee, University of Glasgow, University of Hertfordshire. These are some of the more expensive schools in the United Kingdom with tuition alone starting from at least £16,000. And of course, the rich tend to be attracted to one another. So when these kids are away from home, they tend to seek each other's company abroad.
0: Biliamino Bello was a 36-year-old real estate developer. He was dark in complexion, slim and taller than average, maybe close to six feet, or maybe even taller than that. Now, Biliamino himself, he came from a humble background. His parents were not quite rich, but he had a very rich and influential uncle. His uncle... Bello Haliru was the former chairman of the People's Democratic Party and two-time former minister. He was Minister of Communications from 2001 to 2003 and then Minister of Defence from 2011 to 2012. At the time Bilyamino met Miriam, he was already married. And according to Daily Nigerian, this first marriage to Fakriya Ben Umar, who was then studying in Edinburgh in the UK, only lasted a few months. And the marriage probably ended because of Miriam.
2: It's August 2015, and Miriam and Biliaminu are getting married. Weddings are a big deal, even for those of us who don't have money. And for people with money, weddings are (laughs) extravaganzas. Biliaminu and Mariam got married according to traditional marriage rites, which are infused with Islamic rites. The wedding day itself is called Fatiha, an Arabic word that means the opening, and it is the day of joining the two families. As part of local tradition, it is the duty of the husband to provide a house for the couple to live in. But the bride and her family have the full responsibility to furnish the house, top to bottom that is from curtains down to the dishes. Now, the wedding itself can last over a series of days, anywhere between two to seven days, and there are many different events that happen during that time. There are smaller events, like the unshi, for the family members and close friends. It's kind of like a bridal shower. At all these events, the bride and groom get marital advice and blessings from well-wishers. And of course, everyone's favorite part of weddings, the food at the reception. The wedding reception is known as Walima, meaning marriage banquet, and it is done according to the taste of the families involved. It is usually held after the fatia, and it goes on for like a whole day with food and drinks available for family, friends, and well wishers. The whole village or town comes out for this. Why not? It's free food. From videos widely circulated on social media, and Billyaminu's Walima was a lavish one. From the food served, to the colorful decoration, to the local incense burning, to the music and the crowd that gathered to celebrate them, it was evidently an expensive wedding. There was even a Mercedes-Benz parked inside the banquet venue, like right inside, next to the dinner tables. Both the couple and the bride's mother wore at least two changes of clothes during the event. The only video where we actually see Mariam and Biliaminu together was during what appears to be the final dinner. Remember, northern Nigeria culture is very conservative, so all the events I just mentioned were separate events for males and females, except for the last dinner. At the final dinner, we see Beliaminu wearing an ash kaftan, which is a long tunic. He's also wearing a traditional headpiece, a hulanzana, worn by men in northern Nigeria. Mariam has this beautiful, elegant maroon gele on her head, which is an elaborate headwrap. Her dress is embroidered with gold and shiny stones. I mean, the room is dark, but she's sparkling. She's got these big gold earrings and a gold statement necklace that takes up almost half of her neck. Throughout the evening, people were showering the couple with money. This is common across all Nigerian weddings. But you see, in this wedding, some people were even spraying dollars. Now, through all of this, one person who is hard to miss is Maimuna, Mariam's mother. She's dressed in white and silver from the gele on her head to the shoes on her feet. Maimuna is dancing and obviously happy to witness the wedding of her only daughter.
3: With the wedding done, the couple settles into marital life. Now they say that you don't really know someone until you live in the same house with them. As the young couple started to get to know each other, trouble began.
4: Now Mariam turned out to be a jealous woman, but Bileaminu probably knew that even before they got married. When Biliaminu proposed to Mariam, her only condition for accepting was that he would have to divorce Fakria, his first wife. She was the one studying in Edinburgh. Biliaminu is a Muslim, and the religion allows him to marry up to four wives as long as he can treat each one equally. But Mariam was not going to be a second wife. She could not even stand the thought of sharing him with another woman. So she made him divorce Fakria by text message. Now, according to Daily Nigerian, family sources believe that Mariam was the one who composed the text message, which served as Fakriya's notice for divorce. In Islam, divorce is quite easy. A man can divorce a woman even by text message, provided that the word divorce is clear and precise in the message sent. But this is different for the woman. The woman can request for a divorce from the man and if he does not grant it, then she has to go to the Sharia court, that is the Islamic court.
0: Now, after the elaborate wedding ceremony, the marriage of Miriam and Biliamino started on a high notes. They lived in Meitama, and Meitama is one of the most expensive neighbourhoods in Abuja. It's where the political elites are based. This is where you find the homes of most senators and ministers. Even the international embassies are all in Maitama. About nine to ten months into the marriage, we know that Miriam became pregnant with a child, and she gave birth to that child sometime between February and March 2017. But even the child could not stop Miriam's jealousy.
2: Daily Trust reports that, according to Miriam, On the 18th of November 2017, she had used her husband's phone to make a call and she found a nude picture of a lady on the phone. So she went downstairs and called him so that they could talk about it. The conversation became a heated argument and so she asked him to give her a divorce. At that point, Biliaminu held her neck and started to choke her. The argument continued late into the evening and around 11 p.m. she went to get a charger from the living room. At that point, in her words, he pushed me and as I was falling down, I mistakenly broke his shisha bottle and the water inside spilled on the floor. He pinned me to the ground and I heard our daughter crying. I told him to leave me so that I could attend to her and he loosened up a bit and I struggled to my feet.
0: Now, Ibrahim Mohammed was a friend of Biliaminu, and he testifies that earlier on that same day, the couple had a fight. Ibrahim was over at the house that day to hang out, smoke shisha and also watch television. Now, shisha is a flavored tobacco which is smoked using a pipe that is attached to a glass pot which basically vaporizes the tobacco. He says he was downstairs while Biliaminu and Miriam were upstairs. He heard noises from upstairs and Miriam called out for him to come up. When he went upstairs, Ibrahim saw both Miriam and Biliaminu holding each other by the neck. He said he asked what was happening and pleaded that they stop. At this point, Miriam said she wanted a divorce, that Biliaminu had to divorce her right there and then. She was not going anywhere until she was divorced. Remember that in Islam, the husband must grant the divorce. Ibrahim said he removed Miriam's hands from Bilamino's neck. But then she picked up a bottle by the side of the door and broke it against the wall. In Ibrahim's word, he said, She came straight to Bilaminu to stab him. I held her hands and Bilaminu went behind and collected the broken bottle from her hands and went downstairs. Ibrahim stayed upstairs with Miriam to try to counsel her to cool down, but she said she would not stop until Biliamino divorced her that very night. According to Ibrahim, she said that either he divorced her or she would cut off his private parts. At some point, the argument moved downstairs to the sitting room, and according to Ibrahim, Miriam entered the kitchen and came back with a knife. Somehow they managed to disarm her but she continued to attempt to grab the knife several times and they prevented her. Ibrahim testified that his friend sustained multiple cuts while trying to wrestle the weapons from Miriam. Ibrahim says that he left the house around 1 a.m. and at that time, Bilaminu was presumably still alive.
2: Sometime between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m., after Ibrahim left the house, Hamza Abdullahi rushed to the couple's house. At trial, Abdullahi identifies himself as a laundryman. We're not sure if he lived on the couple's property or if he was in a neighboring house, but either way, he arrived at the home where he says that he met Biliaminu clutching his shirt to his chest. While trying to help Biliaminu, Miriam emerged from the room with car keys and asked him, along with two others, to help her get Biliaminu into the car. It was at that point Hamza noticed. Bloodstains on the floor. He testifies that they first drove Biliaminu to a clinic in Maitama. When they arrived there, the doctor on duty asked Miriam what happened to her husband, but she did not respond. And probably because she refused to answer, the doctor asked them to take Biliaminu to another hospital. So, according to Abdullahi, they then went to Maitama General Hospital. And at Meitama General Hospital, Mariam was again asked what happened. And according to Abdullahi, she explained that she took a knife, and while her husband was trying to collect the knife from her, the knife mistakenly stabbed him. The doctor at Meitama General Hospital then confirmed that Bili Aminu had died. At
4: 3.45 a.m. on the 19th of November 2020, Samuel Okon, An assistant superintendent of police at the Maitama police station was on night duty. He received a call from the Maitama General Hospital that a lady was there with a lifeless body. On arrival, he met the lady, whom he confirmed to be Mariam Sanda, standing beside the deceased, identified as Biliaminu Pelu.
2: If you remember, Mariam testified that she had been fighting with her husband that night over a nude photo on his phone and according to her during one of the arguments he pushed her and on her way down she broke his shisha bottle and the water inside spilled on the floor as they were struggling she heard their daughter crying and she left the room to check on the baby according to this day Miriam says he loosened up a bit and so she struggled to her feet but while he was trying to hold her Biliaminu fell down Then she saw him holding his chest and saw a broken bottle in his chest. She removed the bottle and covered his chest with her scarf. She rushed out to call for help and met someone who helped her take her husband to the clinic and then to Meitama General Hospital, where he was pronounced dead.
4: According to ASP, Okon. Mariam's testimony in 2019 was consistent with the written statement that she gave after the incident back in 2017. In that statement, she wrote that she and her husband had a misunderstanding, and while they were fighting, she broke a shisha bottle, which had water in it. Due to the slippery nature of the floor, he slipped,
1: fell on the broken bottle, and it injured him. On November 23rd, 2017, The police filed murder charges against Mariam Sander. And the next day, the 24th, she was sent to Suleja Correctional Facility and denied bail. The trial lasted for three years and two months, from November 24th, 2017, to January 27th, 2020. And on that date, Justice Yusuf Halilu passed a death sentence on Mariam Sander. According to Section 36,
3: subsection 5 of the Nigeria Constitution, a person is innocent until proven guilty, and the burden is on the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt.
4: Yes, and according to a paper written by Dr. Onyeka Williams Igwe, the law does not really provide a clear definition of what beyond a reasonable doubt means. But we have some guidance from past judgments, which is a common practice in the courts, Where the law is not precise, judges will take their direction from judgments that have been established in the past. Judges in the past have been clear. There is no way to be 100% certain. Absolute certainty is impossible. Rabia, in this case, what was Mariam Sanda charged with? Well, in 2017, the police charged her with two counts of culpable homicide. They claim that the killing was premeditated and that she did so with absolute intent to kill. Now, we do not have access to the court records, so we can't be sure what they used as evidence, but we do know that the doctrine of last sin was applied. According to this doctrine, the person last seen with the deceased before his death is responsible for the death, and the accused is expected to provide an explanation of what happened. Now, Maryam provided an explanation. She said he slipped and fell. But for the court, and based on the way the charge was written, it seems like the manner of death and how he died did not really matter to this case. All prosecution had to prove was that she had intent to kill him. And the testimony of Ibrahim Muhammad established intent. Remember, he was a witness to their arguments that day, and he testified that she attempted to attack him with various items, including a knife. Then the prosecution had to prove that the killing was premeditated. And again, here we're not sure what evidence was used. It could be that they discovered that the broken shisha bottle was an attempt to stage the scene to support her story. Or maybe to cover up. And maybe the police discovered the stab wounds did not match wounds that a shisha bottle would have left behind. But in this case, Rabia, there was no autopsy. That's right. As far as we know, no autopsy was done. It's Islamic practice that the body is buried as soon as possible within 24 hours after death. So the family requested the police to release his body. But we do know that the police took photographs of the body at the hospital when the wounds were still fresh. So maybe they used that
1: as evidence. Despite the prosecution witnesses, they presented at least six, Mariam maintains that the death was an accident. During her testimony, she stated, and I quote, My lord, I did not kill my husband. I would not have done such a thing. We loved each other despite our differences. Now, this case was sensational. It garnered so much media attention. Mariam Sander was labeled as husband killer by several media outlets. And when there was outrage over the name, she was later dubbed alleged husband killer. This was a case involving two rich, powerful families. She was a young, rich female, and her husband was the nephew of a respected politician. Now, most Nigerians feel that justice is something you can buy. So with two rich families, this also became a case of which family has more influence. Alex, given the amount of attention on this case, was justice served? I don't know, it's hard to tell, but the whole case is just sad, for Billy Aminu and his family, and for Mariam and her family. And even though it's a private matter, the thing is the case played out in the public space. We're left wondering about a lot of things. Was Billy Aminu still alive when they went to the first clinic? Did the clinic refuse to treat him because Mariam did not answer their questions? You know, there's this thing that some Nigerian hospitals allegedly do. They won't treat violent-related injuries like gunshot wounds or stabbings without a police report. We don't really know how true this is, by the way, but it is of popular opinion. Now, to be clear, and this is as far as we can tell, there was never a law that said hospitals have to report to the police first before they treat a gunshot or stab victim. According to the Robbery and Firearms Act of 1990, Section 4, Subsection 2, it shall be the duty of any person, hospital or clinic that admits, treats or administers any drug to any person suspected of having bullet wounds to immediately report the matter to the police. But, as with a lot of things in Nigeria, it's not so much what's written in the law, but the interpretation of it. According to an article by Business Day, some doctors turn away gunshots and stab victims because they are afraid of being pulled into the investigation. In some cases, it's alleged that the police have accused doctors of collaborating with the criminals, and the police have the power to come in and shut down the entire hospital. So doctors, especially in smaller clinics, tend to turn away these type of victims and instead refer them to general public hospitals. Now, the government in December 2017 enacted the Compulsory Treatment and Care for Victims of Gunshot Act. This act actually punishes clinics and hospitals that reject gunshot victims with fines and in some cases imprisonment. By the time this case happened with Billy Amino in November 2017, this act was technically not a law yet. But I still can't help but wonder if it was possible that Bilu Aminu was still alive by the time they went to the first clinic, and if he had received some kind of medical attention at that clinic, would he still be alive today? And if the clinic could have done something, what responsibility do they bear for his death? And I know the focus and empathy is usually with the victims in cases like this, and it should be, but I can't help but wonder, if Mariam Sander committed this crime, was she in her right mind? If
4: she had committed this crime, I don't think she was in her right mind. According to Section 284 of the 2004 Criminal Code Act, a person is not criminally responsible if they commit the assault while being suddenly provoked and if the provocation deprives the person of their self-control and if they had not had time to cool down. Section 318 of the same act states that when a person unlawfully kills another under these circumstances, the person is guilty of manslaughter only. Now, the issue here is the word sudden. According to Ibrahim's testimony and even her own testimony, they had been arguing throughout that day. Now, the prosecution would argue that had she assaulted him the moment she saw the nude photo, then maybe provocation would apply but hours had passed before he died. The question is, was that enough time for her
3: passion to cool down? If Nigeria's Supreme Court upholds the death sentence passed by the lower court, then I hope that President Muhammadu Buhari considers this case for clemency. I cannot comment on whether Bilyami Nubelo fell or whether he was stabbed with a knife, Mariam's testimony has been that she did not kill him, that he fell on a broken shisha or hookah bottle. An autopsy would have conclusively established how he died. And as far as we know, an autopsy was not done. If we are going to sentence someone to die, we should do everything we can to be as certain as is reasonably possible. Now, as part of our research for this episode, we found other cases around the world where people have fallen on broken bottles and died, so that scenario in this case is within the realm of possibility. But for the rest of my comments, I'm going to pray and assume that the court had some physical evidence that he was stabbed to death and that the court scientifically eliminated the possibility that he fell on a broken bottle. So, with the assumption that he was stabbed, I'm going to focus on Mariam's state of mind. And I speak in my capacity as a neuroscientist when I say that the doctrine of provocation applies if she stabbed him. And I'll tell you why. Hours had passed between when Miriam first saw the nude picture to the time that Biliaminu died, therefore it is assumed that she had time to cool off. That assumption is very much wrong. Our ability to control our impulses and emotions, especially anger, is related to our biology and specifically the biology of the brain. An older brain is much more capable of controlling impulses and emotions compared with a younger one. The science has shown that the prefrontal cortex, a key part of the brain involved in impulse control, that part of the brain does not fully develop until the mid-20s. And I can tell you that I'm pretty sure my own prefrontal cortex didn't fully arrive until I was about 28 years old. Now clearly, not all 20-somethings are going around stabbing their husbands. If Mariam did stab Billy Aminu, other factors must have been at play. Jealousy. Yes, we all get jealous. But there are a subset of people out there for whom jealousy is pathological it's extreme. It's called morbid jealousy, delusional jealousy, or sometimes the Othello syndrome, after Shakespeare's tragic character. These people with the extreme form of jealousy tend to be delusional, obsessive, and some even have underlying brain dysfunctions. Now, we don't know if Miriam was diagnosed with the extreme form of jealousy, but we do know she had jealous tendencies. She was clear that she could not be a second wife. So we now have two risk factors, an immature prefrontal cortex and jealousy tendencies that might have been on the extreme end and may be accompanied by some neurological dysfunction. Let's add the third factor, hormones. She was pregnant. Yes, I know, not all pregnant women stab their husbands to death. If they did, we wouldn't have any more men left in the world. But every father listening to this knows that in those nine months of pregnancy, she was going to kill you, at least once. And it's a miracle of nature that you're still alive. One hormone especially has been linked to aggressive impulsive behavior. Cortisol, the stress hormone. And this hormone is high during pregnancy. Testosterone is also associated with aggression, typically in men, but it turns out that this hormone tends to also be high in pregnancy, especially when the pregnant woman is a young woman. Miriam was young and pregnant in her first trimester, and she already had a six-month-old. The hormones cortisol and testosterone were probably raging in this woman's system. So you take these three factors, an immature prefrontal cortex, because she was young, tendency to jealousy, that probably was the extreme type, and high levels of cortisol and testosterone. And on top of this mix, which is already pretty dangerous, you then add a nude picture of another woman. Even under normal circumstances, most of us would get angry. There is no way that Miriam was behaving like a reasonable human being under those conditions. If she stabbed Bilyamunu, she was not in her right mind. The hours between finding the nude photo and his death were not cooling off hours. With obsessive tendencies, that anger was probably ramping up, especially if she was finding out more information. So if she stabbed him under these conditions, Section 318 of the Criminal Code Act applies. The Backstory is brought to you by Triple E Media Productions. Production Copyright 2021 by Triple E Media Productions. If you enjoyed this episode of The Backstory and want to hear more, give us feedback. Subscribe to our 234 Audio YouTube channel. Visit our website at 234audio.com and download our 234 Audio app. Episodes of this podcast can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Casts. This episode was produced by Alexandra Gekpe, Anthonieta Kalunta, Richard Anyabe, Rabia Hadeja, Dominic Tabakaji, Sam Tabakaji, and Nico Rivers. Special thanks to John Iwodi, Stanley Bentu, Aredi Isha, and Mala Iwagwado Ikaleku. I'm Ramat Mohamed. See you next week.